What's up, Lamb Fam? Welcome back to the Life After Miscarriage podcast, where we unapologetically chat the ins and outs of what life is actually like after miscarriage. I'm your host, Shelly Metling, and with four angel babies myself and one rainbow baby here on earth, I have created a platform for you guys to share your stories. So sit back, relax, get ready to relate, laugh, and cry as we get real on what life is actually like after miscarriage in the 21st century. Hello, everyone. We have Jessica Huddle on today's episode. I am so excited to get to know a little bit more about her and her journey. Jessica, I'm just going to toss it at you. Start wherever you'd like. All right, perfect. Um, Shelly, thank you for having me on first. Um, uh, It's really wonderful to get to share my story with all of you and just kind of be open and say it out loud. I haven't besides my husband, I haven't really told my entire story. So I'm a little nervous, um, but I'm gonna get through it. And hopefully something buried in all these pages of notes will help one of you out there or or two. Um, I am 39 years old. I live in Austin, Texas with my husband. Um, I will be 40 in March and we have been together for 14 years and married 10 years this year. He's my soulmate. He's my best friend. Um, we started trying to have another baby almost, I would say, t- 11 to 12 years ago. Um, we do have one together. Um, he is 12 now, so it, w- so it must have been about 11 years ago we started trying again. Um, he also has a daughter. I have a stepdaughter. She is 17. She's going off to college next year or this fall, excuse me. And, um, you know, we have a happy little life, but I always wanted to have five kids. I'm the oldest of four. So I wanted a big family. Um, I think it's important to have that camaraderie with your siblings. Um, and I just wanted my kids to have other siblings to rely on um, when we get older and, you know, for holidays and things like that. Um, A little about my husband first, um, I wanted to touch on, he was married before me, obviously, and him and his first wife had a stillborn baby um, the year before his daughter was born. And her name is Casey. And I never really understood the pain that he had inside until I started having my own losses. Um, And I think that's really important to remember um, when this starts happening to you, it's really important to remember your husband and to remember the fathers because they too have pain and it's different pain, but they often get overlooked and shoved to the side because you know, the mom is such a mess or we're grieving in our own way or just because we're female doesn't mean that the male doesn't have feelings too or a partner, any partner. Um, So it's, I never really understood how much pain he had from losing Casey um, until this all started happening to me. Um, We have had six consecutive miscarriages over our entire span of being together. Um, 
and I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit about that. First, I want to touch base on my only child, my only living child's birth experience, um, because that kind of ties into what is happening now. Um, so his name is Keaton. He's 12. He was born in 2007. Um, when we got pregnant with him, I was very young. I was 27. And I wasn't um, a nurse yet. I was in nursing school. And he, <clears throat> we wanted to do an all-natural childbirth at the birthing center with no interventions. And I was very granola, I guess you could say. Um, and so we started seeing a midwife and the midwife started, you know, measuring and checking things, but we didn't really have any kind of medical intervention during that pregnancy. At 30 weeks, I was supposed to make an appointment to go in for an ultrasound because they suspected that I had a low-lying placenta. And I think I forgot to make that appointment um, just because I was busy at work and busy with school and, you know, life got in the way. And I ended up <clears throat> going in to see the midwife at 31 weeks. And she did my measurements. And I had mentioned to her that I felt like I was getting bigger, but my belly was shrinking. And she said, did you, you know, she asked if I had gone in to get that follow-up ultrasound for the low-lying placenta. I had only had one ultrasound before. I said, oh my gosh, no, I forgot. And she said, you need to get over there as soon as possible. And I think we ended up going the next day. It's been a while, so I, everything's a little foggy. Um, when we went in for that ultrasound, the doctor asked us a bunch of questions. Um, didn't really say there was anything wrong during that ultrasound other than the baby was small asked what my birth weight was when i was a baby asked what my husband's birth weight was when he was baby and he he said that it was normal to have a smaller baby um, the baby was measuring at about i believe he was two and a half pounds and that wasn't really on track for a 31 weeker um so told us that we would just have a follow-up ultrasound and watch it and everything was okay and sent me home. Well, I kind of felt in my bones that something was wrong. And when I got home, you know, I went into the, the rabbit hole that sometimes we often do of, oh my gosh, what if something's wrong? What's going to happen? You know, my husband and his previous history with, you know, his baby and, and then now this, it just kind of started snowballing. Well, about an hour later, the office called me and said I needed to get over to the perinatologist immediately, that the doctor had reviewed <clears throat> that ultrasound further and discovered that there was some blood flow issues from the placenta to the baby. Um, so, you know, we immediately, immediately went into panic mode, rushed to the perinatologist, had it more in-depth ultrasound and <clears throat> she discovered that the baby had IUGR which is intrauterine growth restriction some of you know that and that there was regurgitation from the placenta to the baby in the umbilical cord so there was blood flow issue um she was very um 
what is the word I'm looking for? She was very cold. Um, it was alarming. We were scared. Um, she didn't have any explanation for us other than unless you're doing drugs or drinking heavily, there's no explanation for what's going on. Just go home. You know, she put me on semi bed rest and we'll just keep an eye on it. So from that moment on, things just kind of spiraled out of control. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, we ended up having our steroid injections to develop his lungs and ended up having him by emergency C-section two weeks later at 33 weeks. And he was three pounds. He was in the NICU for exactly three weeks. We were extremely fortunate that he did not need hardly any intervention other than tube feeding and some oxygen. Um, but at that time, I was so young and I wasn't a nurse yet, so I really didn't know what was going to happen. Nobody was telling us that he was going to be a NICU baby. Nobody was telling us what to expect and all that that entailed. So at that time, I felt like, you know, this is terrible. I didn't get to take my baby home from the hospital, you know, all these things. Looking back on it, how fortunate were we? How fortunate and what a miracle is he? Um, to be here and and now and I'll get into my medical history in a second but now knowing what caused it we are 100% so fortunate to have him because he could have been stillborn as well um so moving forward he's wonderful he's 12 he's huge he's not 3 pounds anymore um and we were very very lucky i never thought moving forward that this would happen again or that I would lose a baby or babies and um, now we know what the problem is. So I want to first start by saying name your babies. I recently did this a couple of months ago. I named all my babies, all my angel babies. Um, I think it's very important. This is probably the second time that I'm going to be verbalizing those names. It's really hard for me to talk about those names because that really puts, you know, things into perspective for me. Um, and it kind of brings up a lot of grief. So I want to introduce all my babies by their name. And so my first miscarriage I had, her name was Hope. I don't know if she was a female or a male. I'm just, I just named her Hope because after that one, I still had Hope. Um, and we had our first miscarriage in 2011. Um, I was eight weeks, five days. I went in for my viability ultrasound at a new OB that I just started seeing, and there was no heartbeat. Um, I don't really remember everything that happened during that time because it was 2011, but I do remember being sent home and you know, I didn't need a DNC and I was told that it would pass on its own. I had just started working in the operating room as an operating room nurse at a level one trauma center. And so I was very, very busy and I didn't want to miss any work. So I just went to work and I ended up passing her at work on a weekend by myself in the bathroom and had no idea what to expect. Um, 
that was super traumatic. That was one of the most traumatic ones. Um, when you pass your baby <laughs> in a bathroom, you don't know what to do. I actually caught her and uh, sorry if this is TMI, but I actually caught her and wrapped her up in a handkerchief and put her in my locker because I just didn't know what to do. Um, having her drop into the toilet was just crazy to me. I didn't, you know, I mean, to me, when you get pregnant, you dream about your baby. And even though it's a very short time, sometimes before you have that miscarriage, you start planning their life and, and what you want that to be like and, and all the aspirations and dreams you have for that tiny soul. So it's, it's very disturbing when that happens. Um, so I went on about my business and, you know, tried to get over it myself. I didn't seek any counseling or anything. And several months later, I started having suicidal thoughts and, and, and gotten to, and fell into a very, very deep depression. Um, that's when I decided I needed to see a psychiatrist. So my husband took me to a psychiatrist and he told me that it was normal, that it, you know, had PTSD from the miscarriage and that all I needed was a little medicine. So reluctantly, I took some medicine for about a year, got out of that depression, just kind of sunk myself into work. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, started to feel better, started to come out of the fog. And we weren't really trying until the next year we started trying again. I wanted to take a break and kind of get over that. Um, the next year, we got pregnant again. It was a very early pregnancy when we found out that it didn't stick. I never had an OB appointment. Um, I named that one fate. Um, my doctor said that this was normal, that it was only two, that I had had two, and that was a very normal thing. Um, she didn't do any testing. She told me that it was, you know, something must have been wrong. And, and that's why I started bleeding. And um, I think I was still experiencing a little bit of PTSD from the year before. So that one was very foggy. I also remember feeling extremely numb um, from that one, because I didn't have a lot of faith. And that's the reason I named her faith, because I obviously had a little bit more faith moving forward because I have continued to try to get pregnant and have another baby. Um, so moving on, five months later, we got pregnant again. This was our fourth pregnancy, third loss. And this one lasted a little bit longer, nine weeks in one day. Um, when I went in for my <clears throat> viability ultrasound with the same OB, I remember this one very vividly because we were in the office and she did the transvaginal ultrasound and she was surprised and she said oh my gosh there's two and my husband and i looked at each other in shock and we're like oh my gosh we're having twins this is amazing you know i mean when you when you go in and they say there's two you either cry because <laughs> there's two or you're in shock. And I think we, it was a little bit of both. We, it was exciting. We were excited, um, but still shocked. And then she looked a little bit further and she said, Oh no, wait a minute. 
something's wrong. I need to go get another doctor. So she went in and got a more senior um, OB that was in the group to come in and take a look with a different ultrasound. Um, the one that had the blood flow Doppler on it. And there wasn't any blood flow to the baby. Um, it was just one. But she said that it probably had a body stock anomaly, which means that things didn't develop properly on the trunk of the baby. And they were kind of on the outside of the fetus. Um, so very disturbing. Um, she wanted to do a DNC because we were so far along. So we did that. We had the baby tested. It was a female with, um, it, it says no, on the test report, it says no chromosomal abnormality. So she, she thinks that that's what happened is that the body stock anomaly was the, the problem with the baby. And that's why we miscarried. Um, but it, on the report, it says it's inconclusive. So Again, we have no real clue as to what <clears throat> happened, but we named her Grace. I loved that name at the time, um, and I thought that was just perfect for her as Grace. And so we waited after that one for a year. We ended up just burying ourselves in our business. My husband runs his own business, a small business in Austin, and I was, you know, in the middle of my nursing career as an OR nurse. I changed jobs, we moved, we built a new house. Um, I got a new OB. I was very um, excited to move forward with a new OB and also felt encouraged that maybe some fresh eyes would figure out what was going on. <clears throat> so, in 2013, I went and saw this new lady, and she was wonderful. She was very well known in town, um, had a great reputation, and she started doing some testing. The first test that she did was the hysterosalpingogram, which is also called the HSG. And um, what they do is they shoot an X-ray using um, dye, and they shoot that up into your uterine cav cavity and your fallopian tubes to see if there's any issues with the uterus or any issues with your tubes. I got the test results back and I had a normal appearing endometrial cavity. So my uterus was okay. My left tube was normal, but the right tube was inconclusive. Um, so she felt confident moving forward that that didn't matter. Maybe something happened with the test. There was really no explanation for that, but it didn't show her anything, anything that would have caused the three miscarriages prior. Um, my husband had a semen analysis and that came back as inconclusive. They said he had very sluggish morphology and <clears throat> we just kind of moved forward. Didn't really think anything of that. There was really no um, direction given to us other than let's put you on some Clomid and see what happens. So in the spring, that was in August of 2013. So in the spring of 2014, we attempted two Clomid cycles and they did some ultrasounds and, you know, we drank a lot of water. Um, I do remember my OB saying that maybe his sample was affected because he was dehydrated, which would have explained it because he works outside and he, you know, is very hot most of the time when he's at work. He has to wear a suit. Um, 
So she said, let's just move forward with the clomid cycles. Well, nothing ever happened. And when I went back, she, oh, I got a letter in the mail not soon after the second cycle that she was moving out of the country. So <laughs> this was very disturbing because when I change doctors, I have to bring on my records and I'm, I'm kind of controlling like that. I want to bring my own records to you as well as the office. They can transfer the records. That's fine. But I want to have everything put together. And then I feel like I have to tell my story all over again, which whether the OB thinks that that's necessary or not, they can just read the records. I don't know. I'm probably wasting my breath, but I always feel like I have to tell them exactly what's going on. And it's just a long process. And I'm sure that a lot of you out there feel that way. Um, or maybe I'm just crazy. I don't know. But I was very disturbed by the fact that she was moving out of the country and I had to get another OB. So I really just didn't want to have another baby. At that time, I was like, okay, this isn't going to happen for us. Um, it's just not in the cards. Maybe God is trying to tell me something. Um, and at that time, I had just started my new job and been promoted to supervisor. So I was very, very busy. And I took a lot of call. Um, so I was just busy. I was busy with my career. I was busy with my family that I already had. And just kind of just put it on the back burner. I didn't, I didn't really fight for it um, like I am now. And, and I regret that decision now because now I'm almost 40. So if I had fought harder during that time, I might not have ended up in the, the place that I am now, which I'll get to. Um, so that was 20, the spring of 2014. And then in February of 2015, we got pregnant on our own, surprisingly. Um, it was a huge surprise. We were very happy. I decided to book an appointment with an OB that I worked with that I trusted and respected another very well-known OB in the area. Um, and since I worked with her and I was in the operating room with her, I kind of knew that she wouldn't just leave me out to dry, so to speak. Um, so I went in, I was five weeks, six days. Um, did the ultrasound in the office, didn't really know what to expect. I was excited, but I knew that there was a chance that it wasn't going to turn out the way that we wanted it to. And of course there was no heartbeat. Um, so she, I gave her my history. She sent me for a DNC for testing or she did a DNC because she wanted to test the fetus again. She wanted to do her own testing and that baby was a normal male, no chromosomal abnormalities. Um, she really didn't have an answer for me, but she wanted to run a pregnancy loss blood plant panel, which in my mind now, why didn't anybody ever run that before? This is number four loss. And this is the only doctor that's ever mentioned that to me. Now I'm an OR nurse and I've done a lot of DNCs, but I didn't, I never researched what to do with recurrent pregnancy loss because I, again, I put everything on the back burner. I worked on my career. I helped my husband with his business. You know, again, I had 
just kind of put everything to the wayside. Um, when she ran that pregnancy loss panel, they all came back normal. All the tests came back normal. So she brought me in to give me the test results and I had a complete breakdown in the office. Um, and she was very understanding. And she kind of sat there and I remember her kind of sitting there looking at the wall and thinking about what else she could do. And she said, let's test you for the MTHFR gene. And I, of course, had no idea what that was. Um, so she said, let's just test for it and see what happens. So I got the test results for that, and I'm positive. I'm positive for the MTHFR C677T homozygous gene mutation. And I'm going to kind of tell you a little bit about what that is. <clears throat> it's kind of complicated, so forgive me if I misspeak about anything. Um, so if you have this gene mutation, which I have two copies, I have one from my mom and one from my dad. So I have the worst of the gene mutation. And <clears throat> what it is, is everybody has one, but if you have the mutated form, it decreases your enzyme acting levels. And so, what it does normally is it's responsible for the breakdown of folic acid, which creates folate. I cannot break down folic acid, so I have to take methylated folate and avoid, avoid any synthetic folic acid in supplements or food. So a regular prenatal for me has a ton of folic acid, but I can't break that down to make the folate. So all these pregnancies, I'm taking folic acid. Sometimes I'm taking four times the amount of folic acid than recommended to a, a person that doesn't have recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, so what I have to do is I have to take a special prenatal that has methylated folate, and I have to avoid folic acid in, in food which is almost in everything that we eat as Americans. Um, anything that's enriched, like white rice or bread, has synthetic folic acid in it. So I have to, basically, at this time, I'm avoiding gluten, period. Um, but I also have to read the labels because some gluten-free items still contain enriched things. And it's, it's, it's all very confusing, and it takes a lot of research. Um, People who test positive for the MTHFR gene mutation have an increased risk for miscarriage, preeclampsia, birth defects, um, and a lot of other things. A whole slew of symptoms, depression, anxiety, insomnia, weight gain, um, tons of stuff. So when we found out that this was positive, it was encouraging to us. We were like, wow, finally, somebody's listening and somebody found it they know exactly what's going on with us now we can try having a baby and it's going to work out and everything's going to be great and um we did it we didn't do anything moving forward other than not using protection so we just went on about our lives buried ourselves in our work um I was trying to climb that corporate ladder in the hospital which is super stressful in itself my husband 
just really focused on the family business and increasing his, his uh, sales and increasing his presence in Austin. Um, and then, so that, so that last miscarriage, his name was Hart. He was a little boy. Um, and that was in February of 2015. In March of 2017, my mom was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and she moved in with me and she died exactly four months after her diagnosis. I completely ignored my grief um, with that loss. She was my best friend. And six months later, I sunk into another bout of depression and horrible grief. Um, this led me to a lot of soul searching. A lot of questions came up during that time. A lot of questions of what am I doing on this earth? What is my purpose? Um, why am I hurting myself every single day, working 12, 15 hours a day, not making myself available to my living children and my husband and myself and where's my joy? Where's my purpose? I need to take care of myself. Um, it just, when you lose your, when you lose a parent or anybody, when you lose anybody, it really puts things into perspective for you. And, um, often you're never the same after that. You're just not, you're not the same. Um, so I quit my job. <laughs> I quit my job. I started working with my husband and I turned 39 not long after that. Uh, when I turned 39, I realized I'm 39 and I haven't had those four other babies that I always wanted. Um, let's have another baby. And so it became very consuming to me, very exciting time. We were older, we were more established financially. So I went to my OB and she referred me to an IVF doctor, a reproductive endocrinologist. And she had done my AMH testing. And um, AMH is often a blood test they do for ovarian reserve. And the normal range is 1.0 to 4.0, and I was at 0.12. And, you know, the explanation that I got was, well, you're 39. You know, your eggs are old. So think about donor eggs. So I didn't really think about it. We went to, the, it took another month and a half to get in to see the, the IVF specialist. Um, so we went to see him in April of last year. He did all kinds of testing. I had another HSG done with the same results. One of the tubes was inconclusive. One of them was fine. The same tube, I can't remember now. Um, my husband had a ton of semen analysis. And at this time, we finally got what we were looking for all those years ago. Um, the semen numbers were fabulous but he had a high DNA fragmentation present in his semen. So the doctor advised us that he needed a procedure called a TESI. That's a testicular sperm extraction. That's where they go in and they take the sperm straight from the testicles, little, a little 
TMI for you guys. Um, and they do that because that decreases the DNA fragmentation to zero. And if you let it go out the, the other channels, the natural way, when it travels through those channels, it causes damage to the sperm. And that high DNA, DNA fragmentation can cause miscarriage. So what he's doing is he's looking at all different angles. You know, how can we decrease the chance of miscarriage for you? I, um, he also suggested that we do donor eggs because I'm 39. Um, and because of my reoccurrent pregnancy loss. He said this is the best possible way to go to prevent the miscarriages and let, let's, you know, this, he, he offered to do all the other avenues. Like I could do the egg harvesting myself, but I would have to do probably three cycles, um, which seemed extremely troublesome to me. I would have to do three egg retrievals, which is hard on my body. Um, a lot of hormones, a lot of pain, or we could do just a regular clomid cycle and see what happens with an IUI, which is the insemination by the doctor naturally. Um, but he said that he wasn't confident that that would be successful. So in order to maximize the financial part of it and to maximize our chances, we were going to go forward with the Tessie procedure and have the sperm frozen and then get the donor eggs, find a donor, get the donor eggs, and then they would do a procedure in the lab by the embryologist called an ICSI. And that's where they take one of the best sperm out of that tube that they've gathered and they fertilize your frozen egg and see what happens. And then they'll implant the embryo into me. So that was in April and I had just had my HSG. And in May, I found out I was pregnant on my own, which was absolutely crazy. We hadn't been pregnant for four years since 2015. And, and remember, we hadn't done anything to protect ourselves. We just hadn't been pregnant. Um, so I highly suspect, um, I don't know if any of you out there have heard this, but I highly suspect that this HSG procedure flushed everything out and um, all the testing that my husband had done and the clean eating that we had been doing had something to do with it. I had also been reading a book about improving my egg quality and had been taking supplements to do that um, prior to deciding on donor eggs because I wanted to get ahead of the game. So ton of research about egg, you know, improving egg quality, improving sperm quality, improving your chances and it happened on our own of course I was at that time I was happy but I was also very nervous because this is not what the IVF specialist my RE told me to do he you know he had suggested all these other things and this was not this was not the path that we were supposed to be on so for about a month I was terrified just terrified and we went in, moving forward, we went in for our first ultrasound and got a heartbeat, which was amazing because all these past miscarriages, I had never had a heartbeat. I had never heard a heartbeat. And it was 147. I was six weeks, five days, and it was amazing. 
I was happy during the ultrasound, but walking out of the office, I was nervous, still nervous, still didn't want to get too excited. Kept telling my husband, don't get too excited. This isn't the route we were supposed to go on. You know, something's wrong. I have the MTHFR gene. Um, I thought I was taking the correct prenatal, but come, come to find out that prenatal had the wrong form of B6 in it, had the synthetic form of B6 in it, and still had a little bit of folic acid in it. So the prenatal that I was taking during this pregnancy was not the correct one. Um, I also had not done extensive research on my MTHFR and was still eating things with synthetic folic acid in it. So I, you know, looking back, was not real happy with myself. Um, in fact, I was very angry with myself because I felt like I caused it. I felt like I caused all of them, but even more so with this one. Um, so we went in for our eight week ultrasound, eight week, five days. So we were almost nine weeks and the baby was moving. It was amazing. He had little feet, little hands um, moving around and his heartbeat was at 185. And so that was even stronger than it was last time. And I finally let my guard down and was happy. I mean, I was truly happy and excited and couldn't wait to share the news with the family. I, I wanted to wait until at least um, my first trimester because I didn't want to, I didn't want to have to tell them that it didn't work out. But me, I'm kind of a blabbermouth. <laughs> so I, I did tell my close friends and my close family. And I remember sending a group text to my side of the family on July 4th. And that's finally when I decided that it was okay. It was okay to let my guard down and that I would, I would announce it to them, you know, not the whole world, but to them and, um, come to find out his little heart stopped beating right at that time. So looking back, sorry. Um, you know, how could I have been so naive, just super naive? Um, we went in for our third ultrasound at 11 weeks. I sent the office cookies, had a card filled out for all my PA and my doctor. I was so excited. And she turned the ultrasound machine away from me and there was no heartbeat. So she said that the baby had passed away at about nine weeks and three days. And so that was it. It happened again. Um, this was number five. And this was a hard one. Um, this was a Wednesday. And she scheduled me for a DNC on a Monday. So I needed to just come home and rest. And I, I kept thinking to myself, I just want to pass this baby at home. I don't want to have a DNC. I don't want to have a DNC. And she kept telling me that the baby was too big, that it would be extremely painful and very traumatic and that I had to have a DNC. I needed a DNC. Um, I, on Sunday night, started having contractions. Actually, Sunday about noon, I started having contractions. I lost my mucus plug. I never started bleeding, though. I just started having 
labor symptoms. Um, and by 6 p.m., I couldn't breathe. It was every 30 seconds. Um, so I was instructed to go to the emergency room. They put in an IV. They gave me a dose of morphine that didn't do anything, didn't even touch the pain. Um, an ultrasound tech came into the ER room and I was so angry. And I was like, why do I need an ultrasound? And she said, well, the doctors ordered one. And I said, which doctor? <clears throat> she said, the ER doctor. And I said, well, this is ridiculous. I don't need an ultrasound. I'm having a miscarriage. And she said it was protocol. So my husband, of course, told me to calm down and let her do her job. And so I did. Um, but I, I just remember being very angry. And I don't know if it's because I was scared. I mean, obviously I was scared, but I've, I just so pissed off. I mean, just so angry about the whole thing and, um, had my DNC and I felt better immediately. I had two doses of morphine in the, in the ER and they didn't even touch the pain. And so finally my doctor came in and did the DNC and I was very grateful for him for coming in in the middle of the night and doing it. Um, but I was also very upset with myself. Like, why couldn't you have just waited until Monday? You couldn't get through it and wait until Monday for your scheduled surgery. Um, <clears throat> and I also kind of just put all this pressure on myself and kept telling myself, like, you're so dramatic. I can't believe you had to go to the ER. What's wrong with you? And um, I also became very upset with my doctor because I immediately came home and got on the message boards and the, the Facebook groups and all my support groups that I was part of. And I was angry that he didn't give me Lovenox injections. And I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but I had asked if Lovenox was necessary for me. And now Lovenox is a, a blood thinner. And when you have MTHFR, um, you're tested for blood clotting disorders. And they had run a COAG panel on me and everything had come back normal. So they did not feel like it was necessary to give me Lovenox. He had said that it was more risky to do that. And considering that I didn't have any abnormal COAG studies that he didn't feel like it was necessary. So I kept telling myself like, why didn't you just give me the, no the Lovenox? This baby would have made it if I had had the Lovenox. Something's wrong. Why is this happening to me? Um, <clears throat> we met with him about two weeks later to do a post-op consult and we got the test results from the baby and it was again, a normal baby boy, no chromosomal abnormalities, nothing wrong with the baby. So he encouraged me to continue on with the plan, the IVF with the donor egg and the testy procedure and the ICSI and, and, the, and the implantation. Um, you know, I, I laid low this time. I gave myself time to heal. I gave myself time to grieve. I didn't, I didn't jump back up and go back to work and, and get back into to life. I really took, took a week off from 
life. And in that week, not only did I grieve, but I started obsessively researching. And something inside of me said that, yes, I can get pregnant. I can go in and I can do this IVF and I can get pregnant and they can get me pregnant and I could use a donor egg or I could use my own egg and everything will be okay. But something was wrong with me and I really needed to figure that out. And I needed to find a provider that would carry me through my pregnancy. And so I read another book about MTHFR. I cleaned my diet up. I started taking different supplements. Um, and when I decided to call a maternal, a maternal fetal medicine doctor, a perinatologist here in town that's been in town for many, many years. It's somebody that had been recommended to me during my uh, fourth miscarriage by my OB. And he seemed to be highly respected. But I needed to know if he believed in this MTHFR gene, because at this time in 2019, 2020, some doctors think it's a deal and some doctors don't think that it's a problem. So some doctors will treat for it. Some doctors say that the research doesn't provide enough um, indication for treatment. I wanted somebody that was going to say, yes, you have this issue. Let's treat you for it. Let's see what happens. Because by this time, I didn't want to waste all this money that we had already invested into this IVF stuff. And I didn't want to waste my time. And I didn't want to expend any more of my energy, you know, and love and all of this stuff for another loss not being treated for this gene. So I call the office. And I'm telling you guys this story because I want you to know that it's okay to be your own advocate. I call the office. A girl answered. She was not very nice to me. She said the doctor would not have a consult with me unless I had all my records sent over from the offices. Um, I said, okay, well, does he treat for MTHFR gene mutation? And she said, well, I don't know what that is. So you need to have all your records sent over and then we'll go from there. And I said, well, I have 10 years worth of records. They're four inches high. Um, I'm not going to have all those records sent to you unless I know that he treats for MTHFR and knows what it is and believes in it. Um, she said, she gave me excuse after excuse. And I finally said, will you please just ask him and call me back? And she said, yes, fine, whatever. I got off of that phone call in tears. Um, because at that point I thought nobody is ever going to listen to me. I'm doomed. This is ridiculous. You know, I'm killing myself trying to have another baby. Um, adoption and foster care and all of the things that, that come after trying to have your own baby start coming to my mind. Like, why don't I just do this? Why don't I just do that? Like, this is, this is done and over with. Um, but at this time we had already invested in our donor eggs. So they were at the clinic waiting for us. Um, and you, there's no return policy on donor eggs. You can't return those. So, um, just very disheartening this whole thing about 20 minutes later, she calls me back and 
she says, the doctor, I, I asked the doctor about your gene mutation and he, he does treat for this. Let's get you scheduled. I need your records. And I said, great. I got all my records together and I took them up there myself the next day. I met the senior office staff member that's been in that office for many, many years. She hugged me. She said, we're going to take care of you. It was one of the best days of my life. I thought, this is it. This is happening. Now, this doctor will carry me through pregnancy and he won't get me pregnant. My IVF doctor will get me pregnant. My maternal fetal medicine doctor will monitor me through pregnancy, get me through pregnancy, and then my OB will deliver me. So at this time, I'm thinking I have three wonderful doctors. All these doctors are going to help me. We're going to have a baby. So we end up having a two and a half hour consult with this guy. And um, he was absolutely wonderful. He listened to my whole story. Um, he said that he has been successful treating for this problem. Um, many, many times. And he suggested that I needed to try on my own again. Um, he said, why don't we just try on your own and see what happens. And when you get a positive pregnancy test, I'm going to prescribe you Lovenox, prednisone, um, an increased dose of progesterone. And I want you to take the baby aspirin and your supplements that you're taking. And I was like, this is amazing. I was also in the back of my mind angry <laughs> because I had already decided to move forward with this egg donation plan that we had going. So psychologically, all this changing and switching up every two months was really wearing on me. Um, but unbeknownst to me, I was already pregnant again. I had gotten pregnant right after my miscarriage. Um, and I had only had two cycles and got pregnant. So my body wasn't really back to my normal cycles, um, which I think might've had something to do with this last miscarriage, but we're, you know, we're not sure. Nobody can ever tell you what the problem is or they can't be certain. Nobody can ever be certain what happened. They just tell you, let's try something different. Um, so I was pregnant again. I started immediately testing um, very, very early. So I felt like this one went on forever. Um, I, called, I called my maternal fetal medicine doctor and got a viability appointment set up and went in. I was supposed to be about seven and a half weeks when I went in, and they have a sonographer in office that do their ultrasounds, and I went into the ultrasound room. She put the probe in, but couldn't see anything. Said that my bladder was still full, that I needed to go empty it again, so at that point, I knew something was wrong. Started getting Teary, she said, oh, honey, it's okay. I saw, I saw a yolk sac, so it's okay. There's something in there. Just go empty your bladder. So got back, I got dressed again, went back to the bathroom, emptied my bladder some more, um, went back in there. I looked at my husband as I was undressing, and I said, this is it. 
it's not going to happen again after all of these Lovenox injections and all this medicine and all this stress, it's, it's over. And he, you know, of course my, my poor husband's like, you have to calm down. It's going to be okay. There's something in there. Let's just get through this ultrasound. And she came back in and there was a baby and I named this baby Sky. Um, but its heartbeat was only at 84 beats per minute and that is not good. And I know way too much and have way too many, too many things in my head, too much information to know that that is not a good heartbeat. Um, I immediately started crying and the poor sonographer was so uncomfortable with the whole thing. She, but instead of just saying, I'm going to go get the doctor or it's okay, honey, or, or anything like that. She looked at me and she said, here's your picture. You should be happy. There's a heartbeat. And so then that just sent me down the rabbit hole into a tailspin about, wow, I should be happy. But I knew that I knew that it wasn't going to be viable. Something in me, something in my bones, something told me that this wasn't going to work out. Um, the doctor came in, he was very somber. And he said, you know, you're doing everything that we can possibly do for you besides um, IV intralipids, which is a whole nother ball game. And um, he said, I want you to go home. You have a 50% chance of miscarrying, which to me, there was probably more like 95% chance of miscarrying. So I was very upset again, numb at this time. Um, came home, waited a week, started bleeding on Friday. And I called the office to tell them that I was bleeding because I thought, you know, maybe they would want to do another ultrasound. And she said, well, what color is it? And I said, well, it just started. So it's pink. And she said, well, I'm not worried if it's pink. So just take it easy. Don't run a marathon and um, call back Monday if you need us. So again, I felt very, I don't know, I, I feel, I feel unsupported. I felt kind of like left in the dark, even though I knew it was my sixth miscarriage, you know, my sixth loss, my sixth miscarriage. I knew that what was going to happen. I'm a nurse for God's sakes. Um, but I waited over the weekend, the bleeding progressively got worse and I passed the baby on Monday. Um, now this time I, <laughs> this is, it's bizarre, but anybody that's gone through this probably has similar story, but I kept the baby. Um, I'm going to bury the baby in the backyard and I want to be able to visit that baby. Um, I prayed over it. You know, I loved it. It had a heartbeat. It was a soul. Um, and then I decided that at that time I needed to name all these babies because they, they all had little tiny souls, even though they weren't earth side, they were still a part of me and they're a part of my story. So I started telling my story and I started blogging on Instagram and I, it's helped me. I, I have found so many people in the Instagram community that have similar stories or 
stories even worse than ours. And, and, it, and it, it does give you hope. And it also brings you into a community that you feel like you're not alone. You're not alone. Um, it happens more times than not. And, and why are we hiding this from everybody? Why are we not talking about it? Um, I made my husband get the Tessie procedure. <laughs> he, he, you know, wanted to do it, but didn't want to do it. It was very You're like, it's time, buddy. It's time. Yeah, it's time. <laughs> it's time. They, they banked seven tubes of sperm. They all looked wonderful. We have tons of chances. Um, our eggs are in the clinic and we are scheduled to fertilize and hopefully do an IVF transfer in late February. Um, that's where we'll go from there. I'm going to continue with my, my, all three of my doctors, um, as of right now. Um, I do want to touch on like the things people say to you. I've had my very, very, very dear friends. I've had my, my dad, I've had, I've had a lot of people say things that will just send you in a, to a tailspin. And, and we all know that nothing's going to make it better for you other than I'm so sorry. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing anybody can say to you that's going to make it better. And, and although you, sometimes you want people to acknowledge it and you want to talk about it and you want to, you want them to, to comfort you, it sometimes is, is detrimental to your psyche for them to say the things that they do. So just know that people are inherently good and, and nobody is trying to to say anything bad and sometimes people just are, are kind of ignorant to the whole subject and they don't they don't know how to what to say how to say things and um but a couple of the things that people have said to me in the past couple of months are you know your kids are grown and you're so lucky to have them and you're so lucky that they're self-sufficient and you're crazy for wanting another baby and why do you even keep trying and you know I have I have answers to all those questions. If, if anybody wants to know the answers and, and the answer is, is that I want a big family. I've always wanted a big family. I come from a big family. I love my two brothers and my sister. Um, my sister is my best friend. I talk to her every day and you know, my, my daughter is my stepdaughter and I love her more than anything, but she's my stepdaughter and she's leaving this year for college. And my son is 12 and you know, I, I want another baby and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting another baby. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with the route that people take either. Everybody has their own journey. And sometimes those journeys are IVF and sometimes those journeys are egg donation and sperm donation. And sometimes those journeys are surrogacy or foster care or adoption, domestic or international or private or, you know, whatever. And and I want everybody to know that I have looked into all those things and those things are not off the plate for us. Those things are, are there and very much alive and, and the research is there and I look at them every day. Um, but at this time, this is how we're going to, this is how we're going to move forward. And if, and if it doesn't work out for us, then we'll, we'll think about those other things and it's okay to, to have your own journey and to do it how you want to do it and the pressures of society and the pressures of your family and your friends and all of that need to be set aside because it's what you and your family um, decide to do. And that's, what's important. And um, I also want to say that, you know, 
I have this overwhelming vision that comes to me. And I know it sounds kind of hokey pokey, but I can close my eyes sometimes and see this little girl with long brown hair and green eyes coming into my room and saying, mommy, mommy. And, you know, maybe I'll meet her someday and maybe I won't. But my hope is, is that, you know, it does work out for us and, and it works out for everybody else as well. That's trying and going through the same process that we are. Um, I guess that's about it. Um, just trying to find my purpose on this earth and, and do good by my family and myself and my little souls that watch over me every day. And, you know, and, and hopefully I can help other people in the process. And, yes. Uh, I feel like I just need to say like, it. mic drop. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I feel like you. you totally beat me to the punch on, you know, asking if you had any piece of advice. I feel like you ended your story with a whole lot of advice for all of the listeners. And I appreciate you so much for that yeah. little nuggets, little takeaway. Um, if somebody wants to reach out to you, is Instagram the best way? Yes. Yes. Okay. Cause I know you said your there. blog, you're blogging on Instagram and sharing your story. Okay, cool. I am. I'm kind of in the process of, um, starting what I think will be a nonprofit to help, um, women. I haven't done it yet, so I'm, I don't want to tell too much, but uh, um, helping women that go into the hospitals to get DNCs. Um, as you know, I'm an OR nurse, and I've done hundreds of DNCs, and when you go have one, there's, there's, no, there's nobody really acknowledging that you're losing your baby. You know, people come in the room, and they're like, I'm so sorry, and, but there's no, like, you know, you don't get a certificate. You don't, you don't get any real support. There's no resource there. So I've got to find a way to do that for these, these mamas that are coming in, whether it's a six week DNC or 15, you know, 14 Mm -hmm. week DNC. Um, and also just a couple more things, keep all your records, have your, your records are your records and it's, it's legal for you to get those. So when you start getting into, to year two, year three, get a copy of everything. So you have it yourself, um, at all times. Um, that's and, a good idea. I never did that. Yeah. Yeah. And get a good therapist because therapy helps. I, I've been <laughs> yes. my therapist for many years. So if you, if you can afford it and you can make it happen on your end, a therapy is very important. Um, if you're going through multiple, multiple miscarriages or even one, um, and don't forget your husband because he, he, he has grief too. So mm-hmm. don't forget those daddies. And one last thing I want to say is that grief is normal and don't let anybody tell you how to grieve. And I, I've had to learn that lesson through my mom's passing and through all these babies. And I still have questions about grief. I mean, I was talking to my therapist yesterday and I said, when is this ever going to go away? It's killing me. It's just, it's like, consuming my body and she said honey it doesn't ever go away it just changes so it's just it's normal it's a normal process give yourself time yes well thank you so much for jumping on and sharing your story and keeping all your records that you have been able to share (laughs) in like such great detail we so appreciate it I think there's so much to be learned in your episode and yeah I just 
thank you. I hope so. And please forgive me if I misspoke about any kind of test results or, <laughs> or, or any testing that I, I said wrong. Just, you know, give me some grace. I was a little yeah. nervous. I always but, uh, say, you know what, everyone is sharing their own story, you know, and things yeah. are different for everybody too. So um, exactly. take that into consideration as well. Sometimes I have people call me out and I'm like, Hey, I'm just sharing like what's going on with me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My perspective of it, not, not yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I appreciate you. I will go ahead and I will link your Instagram in the description of this episode and you guys reach out. That's what this is all about. So just building a community. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you, Shelly. Have a wonderful day. I really appreciate you. Yes, All the work finger, you're doing. Fingers crossed for February. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Thank you. Yeah, fingers crossed. We're, we're excited. But yes. Thanks okay. again. Yep, Have a we'll wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a friend who could find it useful or share it on your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag my guest so that we can personally thank you. This is a lamb fam, you guys. We're not in this alone. We're creating this ripple effect together.